Well, good morning and welcome to Bankery Christian Fellowship Church. Uh, welcome to this time of worship. Um, if we haven't met before, my name is Duncan and I have the privilege of serving as pastor here. And uh, there's tea and coffee served after this service. So if we haven't met yet, I would love to meet you there. And I want to extend just the warmest of welcomes to everyone to come here today. And to say that actually, it's not my invitation or even my welcome that brings you here. Um, it is genuinely God Himself who invites every one of us to draw near to Him together, to know Him better, and to respond to Him with our lives. Listen to these words that the prophet Jeremiah was given to speak to God's people. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord." We must not hear these words as a list of demands that God makes of us. Instead, we are to hear that this is the God of the universe, the God who is outside of all time, who exists in perfect purity and exercises all power, and yet He invites us, invites us to see past the things that we've been tempted to think highly of this week my wisdom, my strength, my wealth, and to come and find the most wonderful thing that any human being could possess, knowing God. It's not a list of demands, it's an invitation to come and to know Him. Uh, Mary is going to come now and bring our Bible reading for us, which you will find in Ecclesiastes chapter 9. So Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verses 1 to 12. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner, and he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also the hearts of the children of men are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live and after that they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward. For the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. 
Go, eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love, all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life, and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom and shoal to which you are going. Again, I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favour to those with knowledge. But time and chance happen to them all, for man does not know his time. Like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time, when it suddenly falls upon them. Amen. Well, you may find it helpful to have Ecclesiastes 9 open in front of you. Uh, the passage is printed in the diary if you want to follow there. In our Parliament at the moment, they are deliberating the introduction of an assisted dying bill. Um, I've spoken about this in some detail here before and given you some of the reasons why I think it's appalling. And I, but I mention it again here to highlight a trend, I suppose, in Western society. Uh, bit by bit, we have become less and less troubled by someone giving up on life. Now, don't get me wrong, suffering is no small matter. Chronic pain is not something to make light of. We must always engage in this sort of debate with sympathy and understanding. But that seems to have now moved to a conviction that the solution simply to end life is now the rational and in fact the common sense option. And so it may well be before too long that anyone in Scotland diagnosed with a progressive terminal illness may be allowed to end their own life, so long as they've had 14 days to reflect on it. Now, there is an obvious flaw here, more than one, but here's one for you. The obvious flaw that stands out to me is that there is not one of us in this room that does not have a terminal illness. We are all heading to the inevitable destination of death, and there is no realistic likelihood of recovery. When someone wants to end their life, that is tragic. It is devastating. And I pray that we never lose that sense of shock and grief and that urge to want to show someone that their life is precious, even if they can't see it right now. Your life is precious. And this part of the Bible that we're looking at today says we need life. We've been given life for a reason, and that it's only in life that we can find true hope, because if we haven't found that hope in life, we will certainly not find it in death. 
That's what we're seeing in Ecclesiastes 9 today. This book of Ecclesiastes is a book for our times. We live in a society that has in so many ways lost its bearings. We have thrown off God and we have reduced as many things as we can down to subjective experience. I will determine what is true and what is right and what is wrong on the basis of how it makes me feel. And we're finding that if we all take that approach, then eventually the pieces just will not fit together anymore. Look at the division and animosity in Scotland today, never mind the rest of the world. And so we're listening to the author of this book, a man who likes to be known as the preacher. He is trying to work out life. And his great conclusion is that life is short, your life will end, and when it's over, you'll be quickly forgotten and there is nothing you can do about it. But his message is to get us to see that that's how God has made life to be. So don't waste your time fighting it. He tells us that we're not in control of our life, but God is, so don't try and fight it. He shows us that there's a lot of pain and injustice in the world, but he's confident that one day God will put it all right, so don't let it consume you. He wants us to see that life was made for living, for enjoying, and that you will only do that if you are able to embrace those limitations on life and receive all the things that you have as a gift from God, living in a relationship of trust with Him. Important to say, these words are not just the words of the preacher in Ecclesiastes, but they are the very words of God to us, just as the rest of the Bible is too, just as we were affirming together our conviction that all of the Bible is inspired, that is, breathed out by God. And here is a recognition that life is complicated, that it's difficult to navigate, and that we require wisdom, but that the greatest wisdom we must have is to know and to fear the Lord. Chapter 9, if you have a heading over this passage, the one in my Bible says, death comes to all. Uh, (laughs) Here we go again. Um, But chapter 9 has the preacher walk us through something of a picture gallery, showing us pictures of different lives, displaying to us all sorts of ironies that exist in the world, showing us imagery to help us understand it. And all of these things are there to try and help him and us make sense of all of the things he's observed. And in this section, he comes to some very important conclusions if we're to find hope in life, we need to understand these things. So, here's his first conclusion. He says, your life is not exceptional. Your life is not exceptional. This can be very hard for us to take, can't it? In a celebrity culture, the desire to have people praise us for some quality or for some exceptional talent that we have I think it's one of the reasons why men struggle in midlife. I may or may not be in midlife uh, because they start to see that their hopes of living the exceptional life are fading very, very fast. Well, the preacher here is saying, even if you are an exceptional individual, 
Your life is no exception. Your life is not exceptional. Look where he starts in verse 1. He's considering, examining how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. He's saying that he sees even the best of people, the righteous and the wise, they're not in control of their lives. Their lives are in the hand of God. Verse 1 still, and whether it is love or hate, man does not know, both are before him. And he's saying, we, we, we look at our lives and what will it be? Will we face love or will we face hate? Does the life that is ahead of us hold good things or does it hold bad things, positive experiences or negative ones? Well, here's the reality. No one knows. It's not in our hands to know those things. And when the preacher walks us through the gallery to show us that that's the same for everyone, that's exactly what he finds. So he says, whether you're a good person or not, I mean, just look at some of those categories that he mentions, whether you are righteous or wicked, whether you're good or evil, the good and the sinner, whether you're a good person or not, doesn't make any difference, whether you're a religious person or not. Verse 2, he says, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who doesn't sacrifice, the one who swears an oath and the one who refuses to swear an oath. What's his conclusion? He says the same event, still verse 2, the same event happens to all. And he says it again in verse 3, the same event happens to all. Love and hate, good things, bad things, delight and despair, whatever kind of person you are, life will unfold in a way that you cannot predict and that you certainly cannot control. Look at verse 3. He says, everyone has hearts full of evil and madness or foolishness while they live. Now, that word evil is not actually being used in the sort of way we would tend to use the word evil today. This isn't a moral category in his mind. He's referring to those times when harm comes to us. And this is what life is like. The human heart is battered and weighed down by the hardships and sadnesses of life, whoever you are. And then what happens? The end of verse 3, after that, they go to the dead. Well, there's more here than that, because actually even when you think life is predictable, you find that it's not. This is what the preacher picks up towards the end of the passage, verses 11 and 12. He says that he saw the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. He's saying there, as he's observed life, he, he would expect, he would predict that the fastest, the strongest, the smartest, these would be the ones who would always come out on top. But as he surveyed life, he sees that that's, that's not actually always the case. And you know that to be true as well. Life is such, I'll test the age of some of you here, life is such that sometimes Foynaven wins the Grand National. Sometimes Leicester wins the Premier League. Sometimes the British Army defends Rorke's Drift. 
And sometimes, even though you did everything you could to prevent it, a season of life comes your way that you could never have predicted and which rocks you to the core. For man does not know his time, verse 12, like fish taken in an evil net, birds caught in a snare, it suddenly falls upon him. And I wonder if as we read that selection of this part of Ecclesiastes 9, we wonder maybe our own society, maybe it's not so far wrong to encourage people who want to leave this life early if this is what life is. Weighed down with evil and madness and then death. Well, Ecclesiastes has a different solution. He doesn't want us to despair. He wants us to have the fullest, most joyful life possible. But he knows that we can never have that unless we are honest about what life is really like. We so easily delude ourselves into saying, well, that will never happen to me. These things always happen to someone else. It never will happen to me. Well, the preacher has conducted a thorough examination of how life under the sun pans out. And he says, you cannot live in this sinful world without being touched by its brokenness. It comes to us all. And he's clear here that there is no connection between someone's spirituality and how hard or easy their life is. This isn't the first time we've seen this, but it does it is worth mentioning again. The reality of the preacher's words is to say, don't kid yourself. If you have faith in God and you're faithful to your religious duty, then that will bring many positive things to your life. But in terms of whether you face happy or sad news, peace or tragedy? There's no way for you to predict that. These things, he says, and let me add, the Holy Spirit says through this page of Scripture, come to us all. So, those who say that the Christian should expect to flourish materially and to never be sick, they fly in the face of reality, but worse than that, they fly in the face of the Word of God, because this is what life is like under the sun. So if you have been to that appointment to receive that diagnosis, if you've received that knock on the door to tell you about that accident, if you're the one who has come home to find that letter sitting on the table, if you have been almost consumed by depression and anxiety, if your heart has been weighed down by life, it is not, it is not because God is punishing you. It is not because God disapproves of you. It's because this is what life is like under the sun in a sin-cursed world. And those who come to Jesus Christ or come to church even to earn some kind of exemption from those things are in for bitter, bitter disappointment. But here's what Jesus Christ has done. He has entered 
decisively into this world to change its whole direction. You see, the world as it is, is not the world as God created it. He made it good. A world that was in harmony with Him and a world that was in harmony with us as creatures. But through human rebellion against God, sin has entered the world. And all that was in harmony is now out of step. Everything seems to be at cross purposes. What could ever change that? Listen to how the Apostle Paul speaks about this in the New Testament. He says, In Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The message of the Bible is that this fallen creation will be restored. And in fact, all that is needed for its restoration has been accomplished by Jesus Christ, not simply by wishing it was better, not even by coming in down to earth and rolling up his sleeves and building a hospital or two, but actually making peace through the blood of his cross. Paul goes on to tell those early Christians He would say, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. You see, we don't get to just look at the world and see how broken it is. We have to look at ourselves and actually see how far from God I am. And we each need to turn to him to be reconciled, to be brought back into harmony with God. And the only way that is possible is through Jesus Christ, through His death, through the blood of His cross. He has paid the penalty that removes forever those things which stand between us and God. He has removed sin. He has defeated the powers of evil. And through His resurrection from the dead, He has even conquered death itself. It means that for anyone who will come to Jesus in faith, believing that He is your Savior, will be reconciled to God. You know, where the relationship was broken, it will be restored, forgiven of sin. And it's through that sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross that even the whole of creation will be restored. The very last book of the Bible describes that for us. We read of God saying, Behold, I make all things new. And all those who belong to Jesus Christ are described like this. God himself will be with his people. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Now, the Bible wouldn't describe God wiping away the tears from His people on the day when He makes all things new unless tears were a reality here and now for His people. Here is the Christian hope. 
that there is, in fact, hope, that there is a day when all that is wrong will be put right, and that all of the ways our hearts have been touched and weighed down by the sadness of life will be fully comforted and healed. And all of that is wrapped up in a person, in Jesus Christ. To see the book of Ecclesiastes as a pessimistic book is actually to only half read it. Its negativity is the key that opens the door to seeing the true value and the true joys of life. So as we've reflected, we're all destined to die. There's no way around that. But for all of the uncertainties and sorrows in life, Ecclesiastes here in chapter 9 says, it is better to cling to life. We should plead with those who give up on life. Because here's the other great conclusion. He says, where there's life, there's hope. So live. He says, where there is life, there is hope. So live. You could be a mighty warrior who bravely led many into valiant battle, perhaps secured great victories, returned home lauded, remembered by a grateful nation. A state funeral is due for such a hero. Then imagine that there is another person, some anonymous citizen, who gets on with a day job that no one notices, who influences almost nobody, who goes from repetitive day to repetitive day, and he finds himself watching the state funeral of this great military man. And he says to himself, oh, I wish that was me. But in fact, who would you rather be? Because in one specific respect in the preacher's mind, the insignificant guy watching the funeral is better than the mighty general who's being remembered for one reason, because he's still alive. He's still alive. The preacher here uses a different analogy. He says, a living dog is better than a dead lion. He's making a specific point about how the one who still has life is better because the one who still has life still has a chance to learn how to live life, still time to learn that he's going to die. That's what he says in verse 5, the, the one who's joined with all the living has hope. A living dog is better than a dead lion. That's verse 4, verse 5. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more rewards. The dead, well, their love and hate, their envy, they've all perished. Their opportunity to live under the sun has passed, but you, you can still find the way. And he describes for us what the life in perspective will look like. And you see this particularly verse 7 down to verse 10. He says it will be a life of joy. 
He says, when we have this understanding of the limitations of life, and particularly our own limitations, and when we accept them, then we're free to receive whatever God has given us with gratitude. And so in verse 7, he says, bread and wine are to be sources of pleasure. And the preacher actually says, God wants you to enjoy these things. God's already approved what you do. Not pining for something you don't have, but enjoying the gracious gifts that God has given you. The language of verse 8 is the language of celebration. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. These are symbols of joy, of abundance, of celebration. And we've seen these things already in Ecclesiastes. But then in verse 9, we're introduced to another joy that God has given us by His grace. We've encountered uh, food and drink and work as, as the joys of life. And here in verse 9, something else. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that He's given you under the sun. So you see the preacher is still clear. Life is still vain. That is, it's still short, soon forgotten. But that makes this all the more pressing. Preacher is kind of saying to us, this is the only chance you get to do this. You see in verse 10 where he's talking about um, finding joy in work and he says, look, when you're dead, there's no more opportunity to do this. There's no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol, which is the place of the dead, to which you're going. And that applies in marriage too. Here we're being shown that marriage is a gift from God. And the fuller, the fuller biblical story of that is that God has given us marriage as a picture to point us to something else, to actually point us to the greatest love that there has ever been, to point us to the love that Christ has for His church and for the oneness that He has with the church. Now, when Jesus returns and makes all things new, there'll be no need for this sign of marriage anymore because it will be replaced with the reality of the thing. It will be evident to all Jesus is one with His people. This life is the only time you get to do this. And so here is joy in your short life under the sun. Life with the wife whom you love. Life with the husband whom you love. Christians have often had a, a reputation for having a very, how shall I put it, functional view of marriage. Well, marriage has been given for the propagation of the species, for the minimizing of sexual immorality, and for the stabilizing of society. Very functional. Difficult to disagree with the specifics, I suppose. But here, this page of Scripture is saying to us, Life with your wife or with your husband is to be enjoyed. It should be a joy. Well, how can that be, some of you ask? Much as we've seen with the other joys in life, 
It starts by recognizing that, well, this is a gift from God to me, a gift to be valued, a gift to be cherished. It's a person to be loved in the sort of self-sacrificing way that Christ has loved me. And in so doing, there is joy. And so, if it is the case that your wife is just the mother of your kids, if it's the case that your husband is just someone to share the bills with, if your spouse is just someone to help keep the house running, then I think these verses would say you're missing out. You're missing out. This is not joyful living. Ecclesiastes says to us, more than mere functionality, here is something, here is someone that God has given for your joy and enjoyment. And I guess all of us who are married, we then ask, well, am I, am I cultivating joy in my marriage, or have I long since settled for the functional? Do we spend time together, or are we just ships passing in the night? If we're both believers, then are we worshiping God together? Are we talking about the Scriptures together? Are we praying together? Maybe your husband or wife is not a Christian. And we pray that they too would come to know this greatest joy of knowing Jesus. But yet there is still the joy of loving and serving and living with this other person God has given as a gift to you. There are many Christian marriages where there is duty, but little joy. I think God is saying, don't settle for that. There's no marriage in heaven. Jesus said so. This is the only chance you'll get to honor Jesus by finding joy in marriage. Don't waste it. So maybe you set yourself the challenge. I, I promise I'll do this. Sit down with your loved one today and ask, how can we cultivate joy in this relationship? I think this, this principle isn't restricted to marriage, by the way. It surely applies to all the relationships that God has given us. The relationship between children and parents, brothers and sisters. There's joy to be found here. Even in this vain life under the sun, and here is one of the places you'll find it. Relationships. God's given them to you for your joy. Enjoy your food. Enjoy your drink. Enjoy your family. Enjoy your work. These are the joys of life. But only when they're enjoyed as a gift from God and enjoyed in relationship with Him. And to ask the question, Lord, how do I then honor you with this gift that you've given? Whether that's food or drink or work or marriage or family. But in the midst of all of that, the uncertainties of life remain. To us, as the preacher puts it in verse 11, they feel like chance. Interesting there, he says, time and chance happen to them all. But in fact, the preacher's already revealed his convictions way back in the first verse that we looked at. His conviction is that we are in the hand of the Lord. And I wonder today 
how that makes you feel. Because, of course, there's a sense in which none of us like to feel like we're not in control of our own lives. But that's not an option. Does being in the hand of God terrorize you? Or does it comfort you? The writer of Ecclesiastes couldn't see everything clearly. What happens after death was clearly something that was shrouded in some mystery for him. He could see that there was judgment. He was confident that it would be well with the righteous, but the specifics God hadn't yet revealed. And with the coming of Jesus Christ, the revelation was completed. And the Apostle Paul could speak about the realities of life and death. And as he reflected on it, he could say that to depart this life is to be with Christ, which is far better. There is, of course, a sense in which the life to come is better. God will make all things new. But it's only better if we have found this hope in life. Only if we believe in Jesus Christ can we have the hope of entering into the joy, into his joy, when our course on earth is run. And it's precisely because we are anticipating that fullness of joy that we will have with him that we live with a foretaste of it now, receiving God's good gifts and living. Find hope in life. Because if we don't find it in life, we will not find it in death. God has sent us his son with power to save from sin and death and from the grave. Amen.